Welcome everyone. I'm Ujela Segal. I'm a vice president at Fenton Communications and this breakout session is No Kids in Cages, Building a Movement Out of a Moment. Fenton was invited to join RAISIS and Badgers and Winters to provide communication strategy and support for about a couple of months ahead of this uh, guerrilla art installation. And it was like, unlike anything I have ever experienced as a communicator who has worked several events. Um, uh, to get a, a sense of what this was like, please check out this quick 30 second video. Um, if you could play it, Anna Maria. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You're sad. Won't love, won't lie. When it's one need in the night, won't love. Get to share 24 of these cages popped up across the city and it caught the attention of many New Yorkers spreading the message hashtag no kids in cages. Well, we need things like this because we need to remind people about the suffering that's happening. I think this is good. It's good to put, put this out here because people get to see what's going on. This visible inhumane situation that is at the border they now see on their way to work you want me to go without well it's too late tonight to drag the past out into the night we're one but we're not the same we get to um thanks everyone thanks for uh, uh your patience right there um uh, we really appreciate it. So we're here to talk about um, this campaign that we worked on. Um, and the truth is, is that children are still being held in chain link cages at the US-Mexico border, separated from their parents, denied their medications, and locked up in freezing temperatures. At the time of this No Kids in Cages activation, six children had already died while in US custody. In support of RAISIS, the nonprofit organization at the forefront of fighting for separated families at the border, we partnered to launch a project across New York City that called attention to the treatment of children at our border and to urge people to pressure their representatives to pass the Keep Families Together Act. The objective of No Kids in Cages was to stop people from becoming inured to the horror and inhumanity of the border crisis and rouse them to take action. In the early morning hours of June 12th, before the sun rose, Guerrilla marketing teams were deployed to install the cages across New York City. The takeover dropped life-size cages with models of children sleeping in them in 24 different locations throughout the city designed to maximize attention. Locations included the fronts of the NY Times and Fox News buildings, city landmarks, and highly trafficked areas in multiple boroughs. The installations provided a multi-sensory experience 
featuring sound from secret recordings smuggled out of the detention centers. Despite the installations being dismantled within hours by the NYPD, the campaign reached hundreds of millions of people through the media and social media. By 7 a.m., several of the cages had already been dismantled, but the conversation had gone viral, a level of attention that lasted well into the remainder of the week. By mid-afternoon, all of the cages had been removed by the city, but the conversation did not slow down for days. Following the June 12th launch, the No Kids in Cages campaign also released a digital installation, a video that captured the cages on Independence Day, and that's the video you saw. Part of the project was also to encourage people to make installations on their own, and, and instructions were shared with a do-it-yourself toolkit. The No Kids in Cages campaign resulted in hundreds of media hits, 89,792,093 total social media reach, and support from a vast number of influencers vocal about the cause. Pedro O'Rourke, Sarah Silverman, Alyssa Milano, and Rosie O'Donnell. In support of RAISIS, the campaign helped spur a significant spike in donations during the week of the launch, culminating in 8.9 million raised. Since June 11th, RAISIS rallied over 68,971 new donors, individuals, foundations, and corporations, not including the monumental increase of supporters over social media. So today, we're here to dig into the overarching question, how can bold visual storytelling jumpstart a movement? To get into this, I am joined by a wonderful panel representing four different aspects of RAISIS work, including Liz Dunn, the Chief Development Officer at RAISIS, Barbara Pena, Director of Strategic Partners at RAISIS, Anna Maria Rea, Associate Vice President of Advocacy at RAISIS, and Carolina Chow, Social Media Manager at RAISIS. Thank you all for joining us today and let's dig in. Um, Barbara. Uh, RAISIS has been at the forefront of family separation and immigration issues. From your perspective, did this campaign actually shift the narrative um, that you were seeing in these issues? Can one have a meaningful impact just from one moment? Yes, definitely. Um, I think for us, the big takeaway was really seeing the possibility of the number of people that we could reach. and you know, we have always uh, believed at Raises that if we tell the truth to people of conscience, if they can see for themselves the nightmare that is immigration detention, what it means, especially for a child or an infant to be held in ICE or CBP custody, that they can make their minds up for themselves. And I think what struck us was the number of children held in immigration detention last year it was just about 70,000. And it's really difficult, I think, for people to conceptualize that number, to really wrap their minds around it. It's, um, it's boggling to think about that, that sort of terror and, and what that means and the impact on, on 70,000 children and, and 70,000 families. So um, for us really being able to shine a light on that and this campaign in particular was able to really shine a light on the truth that is purposefully kept hidden and locked away. And I think for people, especially from, you know, a communications standpoint, being able to reach a vast audience and being able to 
uh, change minds and, and really impact the way that people not just view um, Im immigrants or immigration, but also begin to think about the possibility of solutions and how this does not have to happen. So really, no kids in cages forced the American public to come face to face with this humanitarian crisis and, and really look at it um, and not turn away from it. So the, the act of the, the cages being placed guerrilla style around New York City was just was was an incredible. Uh, it was incredible to see and even more incredible to see the responses that we received from supporters and uh, people who, who were familiar with the, the policy issues, but also so many people who really had not been aware of it before. And I think that was a big, that was a big moment for us. Thank you, Barbara. Um, for Carolina, um, part of this campaign was the visual installations, um, but the truth is much of the life of the campaign took place over social media. Um, I understand you had only recently joined RISIS at this time. So how did you quickly formulate a social media strategy and what do you think it accomplished alongside this visual storytelling? Oh, I was on mute. Yeah, so I had literally just joined RISIS about a month prior to the action. Um, so I was onboarding during the whole uh, development of the campaign. So it was de definitely a wild ride for me uh, because amid the onboarding process, I was being told about everything that was being planned for this. And so I think immediately my brain went back to a year prior uh, to the height of the family separation crisis. I was still not at Raices at that time in 2018, but that previous summer, um, amidst the administration's zero tolerance policy, a Facebook fundraiser for Raices had gone viral. And it had been a huge, huge moment for us in terms of amplification and support for our work. So No Kids in Cages just seemed like the natural continuation of that one year later. Um, at the time, I had archived all of our previous Instagram posts and was working meticulously on discovering and strategizing around our voice and what that sounded like and the narrative we were going to want to uphold and lead with on social media. Uh, I was taking a lot of cues actually from the types of conversations that were happening organically on Twitter and just the speed in which we had to react to things because of the way the immigration news cycle works under the Trump administration. Uh, there was a sense, I think, of immediacy on Twitter uh, and a natural sense of community as well within the immigrant rights world on that platform that I wanted to replicate on Instagram and I wasn't seeing a lot of at that time because uh, 2020 has changed a lot of things and one of them has definitely been the way people in movements use Instagram now, definitely, um, especially over the last few months. Uh, that being said, I think that as many of us communication professionals know, we can't seek virality. Uh, there's no magic formula to it. Uh, but as my colleague, who's probably here watching me now, Isabel on our social media team says, we can't, um, we can only act within moments of inertia. Um, 
And so when I got told about No Kids in Cages, I knew that this was going to be yet another catalyst opportunity for Thaisis uh, to continue amplifying its message. So the plan quickly became to relaunch our Instagram on the day of the action uh, with a big bang, um, not for virality, uh, because none of us knew if that would even end up happening, but to start a conversation. Uh, we needed to engage people to reach new audiences. Uh, so we knew whether you saw the installations on the streets of New York City or the video shared by one of your friends on your timeline or on uh, Instagram stories, people would have questions. And not only did we want to be there as Raices to answer them once they searched through the hashtag or looked at a photo, we wanted to lead people to other facets of the US immigration system because um, I think Barbara touched on this, the horrors don't stop at kids in cages, they go far beyond. And so I think the effects of that action are still very evidently visible on our social media platforms. Not only did our following grow, uh, we now had a chance for a narrative expansion. Um, because up until that point, our social media channels had been almost exclusively used to sound the alarm on all sorts of issues in the immigration world. Um, but that changed there and then as we began to make advocates out of our followers. Um, and how did we go about doing that? By making our platforms educational resources. So we work on a daily basis to educate and inform our audience that these aren't just one-off policies. Um, it doesn't stop at kids in cages. It's a web of systemic human rights violations happening right under our nose. Um, and so I think a lot of that is where our next step in, in No Kids in Cages um, became Don't Look Away, another campaign that grew out of this. Um, but I'll definitely leave that piece to the rest of my colleagues. Um, but yeah. Thank you, Carolina. Um, it's uh, uh, interesting to uh, hear, you, uh, hear you talk about um, the social media strategy. So I'll take a second to talk a little bit about the, the earned media strategy and what Fenton did. So Fenton joined Raices and Batters and Winters last June toward the end of the production process. Um, our charge was to develop messaging and a communication strategy, create social media toolkits and media kits, pitch media and coordinate all media interviews, and uplift all of the good work that had already been done. Um, language was really important. Uh, the cages that we used were not exact replicas of the cages that are in use by ICE. They are a representation. Um, many organizations, um, worried that they'll be pilloried for supposedly exaggerating something unless it's not accurate. And this project was a sign that maybe some of those fears are misplaced. We were clear to say that these represent the cages instead of using the word replica. Um, and it's another thing that's important to note and was, was kind of interesting is that um, these cages were placed all around the city so there wasn't a real base. Um, and a number of the cages were picked up and dismantled by the NYPD very, very early on. So we worked with Badgers and Winters who were on the ground and could tell us which, which cases were up so we could direct press there. If they went to one cage that was no longer up outside the New York Times building, we would tell them go to the one in front of the Fox News building. 
And for media interviews, we thought about doing a press conference in front of one of the cages, but we also wanted reporters to get a chance to see people interact with the cages without us there and to get that sort of B-roll footage. So we set up a space in a centrally located place and told all press to come there after they got the footage of the cages. Um, and this worked out very well um, because during the day we were able to go, to, go through about three, uh, three TV interviews in an hour. Um, so it was a packed day. Um, and we were able to get press pieces from CNN, Washington Post, the AP, Univision, USA Today, The Guardian, CBS, NBC, NPR, among all the local television. And um, thanks to this great team of communicators and to the people at RISIS, we were able to make it through by, sharing connect by staying connected and sharing information. Um, uh, next question I wanted to ask Ana Maria. This campaign looked at a practice that is, that is actually devastating for people's lives um, and uses art as a means for storytelling. What power do you see here for awareness as a public education tool? And how do you curate these campaigns when sharing stories about such inhumane conditions and their real world impact? Thank you, Ajala. I think this is an extremely important question in, in communicating these very real experiences that children and, and their families are enduring on a daily basis because this is still happening. Um, you know, one of the most important things in, in raising awareness um, and having the power to tell these stories is to really center those who are directly impacted in, in, in how we're communicating these things. Um, I know a lot of our staff, a lot of the, the processes that we use in communicating um, these stories are always and often with a trauma-informed care hat, you know, and, and, and many of you probably know this, but there are trauma-informed care uh, interview trainings that, that you can take. Um, a lot of our staff have done those. Some of us, you know, have, some of us haven't, and, and we also speak from a directly impacted experience ourselves, and so being able to center that is extremely important when you're telling stories about uh, what children and families are enduring on a daily basis. Um, that, that will really keep you away from coming at this with a message of um, a white savior complex, which is one of the biggest things that as an organization, we, we filter every single thing that we do to make sure that we are not um, taking a savior complex in, in the stories that we tell, but also, again, that we center and empower the voices of those who are directly impacted. You know, something I often hear in communication, specifically when, when talking about um, art and incorporating these types of um, campaigns is that um, organizations are giving voice to the voiceless. And the thing is that people are not voiceless. They have a voice and they want, they want people to hear their voice. And so again, being able to center their stories as the directly impacted, being trauma informed in approaching how you talk to people about this is extremely important. I think one of the most powerful things in raising awareness was that like Ujala mentioned, you know, we, we, this was um, a representation of those cages, but the thing is, is that they look very similar. When, um, when kids come in to, to receive legal representation from our organization, time and time again, um, I've heard stories of children describe, they literally um, say that these places are called perreras, which in Spanish, um, it, you know, the English translation of that is a dog kennel. 
And that is how a child describes these places, like a dog kennel. And they put many children in, in one of these, you know, cages um, during processing and detention. And so I think what was powerful about the No Kids in Cages campaign was that it was a representation depicting the words that, that children time and time again tell us um, to describe the places um, the, that they're enduring. You know, the, the Maillard um, blanket that you see is what children receive uh, to keep themselves warm. These places on purpose uh, crank up the, the AC to make it extremely cold for the children while they're there. And so it truly is a visual that tugs at, at um, the heartstrings of people without um, approaching this in, in a careless way, in a way that, that's really um, trauma porn. You know, a lot of us are so exposed to that these days, especially, um, you know, with what's happening with our Black siblings. And again, it's really important to remember that, that we want to center their voices while also respecting their dignity and respecting that that uh, these are human stories that we are that we are telling you. We want to tell them with integrity. And so it's a bit of a of quite the dance to do that, right? And so I think another important piece that helps with that is having culturally competent people uh, working in your teams. Um, people that are able to, to understand these experiences. A lot of us who work at Raices are people who are immigrants who to this day are still undocumented. And so having those people who can culturally competently curate um, and guide uh, the artists and guide um, you know, our partners like Fenton and Badgers and Winters into how to tell this story with dignity is extremely important. Thank you so much, Ana Maria. Um, uh, another question I had, and, and this is for, for Liz Dunn. Um, one tough moment in these types of campaigns is choosing the right ask and thinking, what do we want people to do? And one can be torn in many different directions. So how did you sort between and prioritize the calls to action? How did you look at advocacy compared to other goals such as development? Thank you so much for that question. Um, yes, I, I work in fundraising and I work in development and we certainly have a lot of coordination with communications and also a lot of pressure on us to, to raise money for the organization, for nonprofit organizations. But uh, Ed Raices, we believe advocacy and fundraising should be coordinated and not siloed in every single way possible uh, for maximum cause impact. If we believe that you know, fundraising can allow us to have the resources to make an impact. We can't strip that away from the impact that we have through advocacy. So early on in the campaign, you know, we established three goals. Uh, we wanted people first and foremost to care. Uh, then we wanted people to take an advocacy action. Then we wanted people to donate. We ranked them in that order of importance for us. Um, that uh, those three goals and that ranking informed uh, both metric-based goals that we continue to have throughout the campaign, as well as buttons and other digital engagement that you saw throughout social media and the web landing pages. Um, 
getting people to care came first for two reasons. First, because you have to get people to care about something before they'll take another action. And uh, to the points of all my colleagues, you know, this is something that's still happening uh, in the U.S. This is something that is just a fraction of all that's happening in the US. Um, there was a lot of public rage and outrage around family separation. And uh, for, for there to be a real and lasting change to policy and change to the way that we, we treat immigrants who come to America, there needs to be a massive culture shift. And so we know that now and into the future, getting people to show up and care is really first and foremost. Um, the second reason is, um, yeah, just to that. We weren't sure that the public still knew or cared enough yet about the issue. So more than any dollar amount that was raised, more than any kind of social media metrics, is out, it was always about like, how do we get people to care? That informed the process of actually establishing things like the hashtag, like um, the creative concepts, uh, like the partnership with Fenton and Badger and Winters. Um, at RIASIS, we recognize that there is a holistic approach to civic engagement. So that kind of complements what we're saying about it's not about fundraising in a silo and advocacy in a silo. It's about how we work together. Um, you know, it's not just about asking people to donate or asking people to volunteer, giving their time or giving their money. It's not a binary option anymore. Uh, we do work around voter engagement. We do work around asking people to be volunteer fundraisers. Uh, we have launched a migrant justice warriors program that is for both um, allies and the impacted community members to come together and fight for real lasting change to policies. Um, to Carolina's point, uh, supporter education is a huge part of what we do, that those who come to us and identify as supporters often don't have the lived experience um, of this issue area and of immigration. And so we really see our job in making people care is about educating them. Um, the great thing is, you know, if I wear the development hat again and the fundraising hat that's part of my job responsibility, those are the ways that people want to be engaged right now. And so that's really an, a shared goal for both of our departments. Um, the key is keeping it simple and clear. Uh, again, that's why we had those three very clear call to actions uh, in the planning of the campaign and then in the execution of the campaign. Um, you know, people are looking for the opportunity to show up and say, I want to help, what can I do? Um, and so we were trying to give a direct and clear answer to what can you do and how can you help? These are the ways that you can do that. Um, and then finally, just to, to that point is people see themselves as not just a donor or not just a volunteer or not just an advocate. They see themselves through this comprehensive lens as a supporter. Uh, we all have a variety of uh, identities that we bring to our, our whole selves. And so uh, we like to think of Rice's supporters in the same ways, um, that they carry a multitude of identities that make up who they are, but that supporter is really the, the kind of um, the, the umbrella that all those things fall under uh, that encompasses all those uh, identities. And so that's why we do multiple calls to action for things that are campaigns and things that aren't campaigns. Uh, you know, we might send an email to supporters and we are very comfortable putting multiple calls to action in there. And we found through data that multiple calls to action work, that people do both. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, you know, this happened in the summer of 2019. In the summer of 
2020 has been an additional movement in a very similar way with Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. Uh, we have seen in, in America and across the globe this tsunami of support, and it's taken the shape of protest as well as donations. So we know a lot of people are giving to a lot of amazing organizations, and a lot of people are showing up in the streets and fighting. Um, and what I've noticed is also this reckoning of making sure people do both, especially people who come from a place of privilege and may identify as allies. It is not enough anymore for you to say you're a donor and you give, or you to say that you are an ally or an, and an advocate and you're, you're fighting against you know, the culture and against policy. You have to do both if you're coming from a place of privilege. And so that's really where we're pushing our supporters now in a way that's comprehensive to advocacy and development goals of like, how do we get people to show up and do more? Because this fight is so big and we need people to show up in every way that they can. And how can we give them the tools to make that easy? Thank you so much, Liz. Um, I wanted to open up a question for um, for everyone before we go into the, the Q&A. And so we have about um, uh, uh, seven minutes. So I guess a, a, a few minutes uh, for each speaker. Um, but the the reality is, is that um, No Kids in Cages took place last June, um, but the conditions in immigration um, for children, for families, continue to be horrifying and inhumane. Um, and it continues to be vital to showcase what is taking place. So what lessons can be learned from that milestone in history and applied in today's movement? And how do we continue this momentum? Um, uh, whoever would like to go first, I'll, I'll open it up. Um, something I, I wanna share with this particular question is um, a little bit of what came after the, the No Kids in Cages um, action. And um, our team uh, decided to take um, this concept into the Iowa caucus, um, you know, in, in, in preparation for this election. And I think that's definitely something important that can be learned and a milestone that, that has been the impetus to many more actions and campaigns that we have created after that. Um, and, and, that's very important to, to, to think of these actions in these campaigns as not just a one-time thing, right? But, but to continue to be innovative as to how you continue to use the same impactful and powerful tool um, in, in future um, efforts. Um, something that, that was really powerful out of the Iowa um, um, caucus where these cages were also used um, was that, you know, caucus goers were, were able to see this. They were, they were seeing it on the news. They knew that it was in their town, in their home city. And the thing is, is that these actions, th these types of communication through art and through these very visual means influence um, public opinion about policy. And so what happens then is that we are constantly reminding the public, this is still happening. This is still happening. Don't forget. Don't forget. And, and from that action was born our Don't Look Away campaign that Carolina um, mentioned a little bit earlier. And so we are continuing to tell these stories in a way that we know is going to influence um, the opinion of people, that is going to influence and remind them that this administration continuously gets crafty on how to come back and instill fear and pain and trauma upon our communities. And so 
you know, one of the, the biggest things is, is that, but also in remembering that um, law is downstream from culture. And so if we can take these messages and continue to amplify them through a different communicative means, we truly can change um, the way that people think about this issue. And we can change the way that they go back and demand change. Prime example was 2018 family separation. The administration did something because the entire country was angered. And it wasn't just our country, it was the entire world. And so that's, that's the lesson and the big takeaway from actions and campaigns like these. I, I also just want to share quickly, because I think that Ana Maria is just spot on in highlighting that. I, I think the reality is that we all sort of understand that we're living in times where the political moment changes, uh, you know, sometimes hour to hour. And even in the immigration world, when so many things happen almost daily, it feels like um, there is an urgency to respond. But I, I think one of the synchronicities of No Kids in Cages was that at the same time, almost the same time that the cages were being put up around New York City, we were deep in conversations with one of our partners, Endalon, the National Day Labor Organization, about how we can create change. Because, you know, as Liz said, getting people to care and really telling the truth about what is happening inside immigration detention and the real world impacts that these policies have on people, that's definitely the first step. But what comes after that? Because once people know and the truth is out there, we're now held to a higher standard, right? We, we have a responsibility now to change things because we understand what's happening and what's going on. And, and so the energy and the attention that No Kids in Cages was able to really uh, bring to the political moment gave us um, you know, gave us an, an opportunity to really carry these conversations forward. And, and with Endalon and, and several other of our national partners, we were able to bring together a coalition of grassroots activists, uh, you know, longtime immigration activists, policy experts, and start drafting what a new way forward could look like. And we began working on the Migrant Justice Platform, which is a set of executive and legislative actions that will remedy some of the, the harm and, and work towards repairing the harm that has been caused by, by harmful policies like family separation, like remain in Mexico or, or the Muslim ban, just, just to name a few. But I think that really understanding that concrete solutions on how we go forward and, and having the voice and the platform to be able to express that to a, a much larger audience even beyond our known supporters, that, you know, there is a responsibility to look for solutions and actively work towards making those solutions a reality. So what we started to put forward after that was some of the remedies that we wanted to be out there and the general public talking about, like a moratorium on deportations and creating new pathways to citizenship for our undocumented sisters and brothers. And I think really getting people to realize that the horrors of immigration detention, um, as you know, Liz and, and Carolina said, that it doesn't just stop with kids in cages. And there's a well-established, well-documented well history of abuse and neglect at the hands of ICE and CBP. 
And we've seen most recently with, uh, you know, Don Wooten coming forward as a whistleblower to expose the forced sterilizations at Irwin. I think we have known uh, for a very long time medical negligence, including deaths in custody, are a grim reminder of how much work needs to be done. And the fact that we're focusing on what policy changes or what executive actions can be taken is crucial for us to really keep that conversation moving forward because we can't get mired down in the horrors of it, right? We, we have a responsibility to, to work to change it. Thank you so much. Um, Liz and Carolina, we have a, a, just a couple minutes before we'll go into the Q&A and there's some excellent substantive questions from, from the audience, but if either of you would like to, to answer, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I would just, uh, I think it's important to recognize that while the advocacy behind the campaign was extremely successful, um, I'm gonna keep pushing this, this point. As a nation, we still haven't surpassed uh, that point in history. It's still very much a reality. Entire families are still in detention. Um, and we're still using the cages. Like this didn't stop with Iowa. This didn't stop with New York City. Um, we're still asking people to replicate them on their own, in their own actions across the country. So I think that's how we continue the momentum. Download the toolkit, build your own installation, put it out on your front lawn, city council, wherever people will see it, and then urge them to vote. Because if not, you can sure as hell know nothing is going to change. And I will just chime in, um, which may come up in the questions as well, uh, a bit of um, the kind of uh, uh, nitty gritty behind the scenes, a bit of kind of how the sausage is made um, for us at Riasis. One of the opportunities that this gave us was the confidence to say, we can do more of this and it makes a difference. Um, and to think outside of the box continually, uh, which my colleagues have shared examples of those and, and how we're continuing to encourage the use of the cages and uh, shifting these campaigns to ones that reflect the 2020 moment and the election. And the, the behind the scenes inner workings of this, for those of you who are at organizations and have an opportunity to, to make decisions and, and um, suggest ideas. For us, that was a creative partnerships uh, position and uh, kind of intentional work together with advocacy and development moving forward. Um, I'll share a link in the chat. Um, so now we have our own microsite. Um, it's kind of Rice Texas backslash immigration in the arts. And it is, uh, it includes no kids in cages and includes don't look away, but there have been so many iterations of this kind of before no kids in cages, as well as after no kids in cages, that we really realized this is something that as an organization with operations, with uh, strategic priorities that we want to invest in to further the conversation, to build structure around it so that others will continue to join in this manner. So um, that's something that I think, uh, you know, we're all really excited about um, and proud of and, and excited to see where this goes. Um, so I'll, I'll share that link as well. Um, thank you so much. Um, I think we will now go to the Q&A section. 
Um, so we have some, some really excellent questions. Um, this one might be a question for Carolina, but of course open to everyone. What do you do with detractors? When the come here legally crowd crashes the Twitter chat, do you engage? Do you block? Do you ignore? Yes, that's a perfect question for me. Um, so I think in a lot of nonprofits and just the, the for-profit world as, as well, um, there's this sense of don't engage with them. Just don't engage and either block or, or that type of um, reaction. I think the most important thing that we've taken from building community on social media is the fact that you now have a support system. Maybe we don't engage, but we know that there's an army of migrant justice warriors who will. Um, and so th that's also a little bit um, going off onto the, the don't look away side, but we do have a, a type of um, program in which people can sign up to be migrant justice warriors and they can be part of our troll squad. And so, because there are so many moments uh, like this, especially now with the election cycle, um, we engage those supporters and those warriors in reacting to these people. And basically they scare them off for us. So that's what's amazing about having a community um, on, on social. And that's what it's all about. It's not about your following. It's not about metrics. It's about creating community. Uh, anybody else want to want to chime in or should I move move forward? All right. Um, uh, come back to it if I didn't give you enough time. Uh, over the last four years, immigration policy, or I should say who is asking the questions. So that was from Sean Adamek and this is from Emily Chow. Over the last four years, immigration policy changes have been nonstop. How did the organization decide to prioritize this specific issue in the larger immigration reform debate? Um, and how long did it take to plan this campaign from idea to execution? I'm, I'm happy to start off on that one, um, if others didn't want to chime in. Um, we get a lot of ideas brought to us, and they're not always the right ideas. <laughs> so we go through a process of getting to know partners in the beginning. Um, a lot of people come to us without lived experience. A lot of people come to us with ideas that don't center voices, um, that frame things as people being voiceless or vulnerable, which doesn't fit with, with what we're about. Um, so, you know, I think, and, and Anna, Maria, Anna Maria spoke to this, that like the real stories, the real authentic storytelling, um, the lifting up uh, a, a community who is absolutely not voiceless at all, um, who, uh, are extremely empowered and need to continue to be empowered, um, not because we are, are there to save them, but because this is such an important uh, issue in the world. And so um, we try and only work with, with people who um, are really aligned with us in values, really listen to us and listen to what we uh, as an organization, as a community are saying the priorities are. Um, to, to the point of the question, there are so many issue areas, we can't tackle them all through creative campaigns. And so this one, um, you know, because I was around during the early days of this, part of what felt 
really intuitively um, natural was the the compassion, the true compassion that initiated this idea from uh, Badger and Winters as as a creative partner um, and from one of the principals. And so that's kind of the foundation. Uh, there are many steps to that. I wanna say this campaign was probably a three month or so process from those first conversations of, you know, th this was not the first ad agency that had come to us and they come and they say, hey, we've got an idea. I'm like, great, okay, let's, let's learn about it. We have said no to things. We have gone down a path and at some point been like, nope, they don't get it. They don't get us. And so we would rather say no to things that don't feel 100% authentic um, and don't align with us than feel like we're, you know, we're not actually missing an opportunity in a cultural moment or in an advocacy moment if it's not actually authentic in the storytelling. So that that is my perspective as somebody who doesn't have the lived experience, um, but but ends up in these kind of partner conversations trying to kind of triangulate um, opportunities and multiple calls to actions. And we have to be comfortable saying no. And we have to be comfortable listening to our colleagues and, and trusting their guidance. And so there are a lot of times where uh, I, get, I get sad about a creative idea, but I know because advocacy saying like, nope, we're like, okay, this is a nope, we're gonna, Nope, not doing it. Um, move on to the next one. So that's my very unique perspective in this, but I'd love to hear from um, uh, my colleagues and hear their perspective. Uh, any, any I totally put you on the spot. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, that's Anna Maria, Carolina, or Barbara. Um, for how this fits, how this issue fits into the broader immigration reform debate. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely um, speak to that. Liz definitely explained, you know, the the how how it happens kind of a thing with with campaigns like these, right? Um, to the second or the, the second portion of the question as to in a sea of policy changes that negatively affect our our immigrant um, siblings because they really are on the daily. Um, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's very hard to think of what should get the most attention, right? Because it's almost like asking ourselves, it's almost like gauging pain and trauma, right? And like, that's one of our biggest fights with the system and with, with the, the US government and even in the processes that they help um, immigrants in, in receiving any type of protection. It's, it's this like awful um, place of, I get to evaluate your, your pain and your suffering, right? And so that's often a difficult question for us because for us, all the suffering is equally as important and it's equally as traumatic. One of the things that helps us um, in, in gauging what we really need to push forward is uh, momentum, right? And so something that, that really got people going was family separation, for example, children being ripped away from their families. Um, and what happens is, but you know, behind the curtains is, is we try to gauge what's really taking off, what's really getting people's attention, right? So that we take advantage of the momentum through a different tactics. And, and it's not just communications, right? But, but through organizing, through development, through education, and 
putting it all together to really even move it even um, forward even further, right? And while also being mindful of all the other organizations that are also working in this, right? We, we are very grateful and, and very humbled by a lot of the work that's happening. For example, um, with the mass hysterectomies that happened in Georgia, immediately in, in recognizing that momentum and picking that, that one thing that's happening right now is also thinking who, who is the leading um, directly impacted even organization in this, right? And how do we uplift them and support them rather than taking it as our own? And so it's hard. It, 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 we're often, again, on the daily, not even just with policies, but with cases. There are individual cases that come, um, that cross our, our arena um, because we, we, in a very collaborative way we do have a legal team and it's a huge legal team that is constantly working on these issues and so these things also come on onto our plates and it's almost of a of gauging if we have exhausted every other means that we could use within the system then it then we the, we go out there and we scream about it and 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 so it's kind of a two-part thing right what what have we used everything else that we could to move this forward and now we need to couple it with the communications and amplifying this, right? Or what is what is the one thing that we really need to, to push forward and use the momentum? I think if I could just add one thing to that, and, and I'll try to say it as quickly as I can, because I, I want to be mindful of the time, but I think that it's important um, what Liz and Ana Maria pointed out about grabbing someone's attention and grabbing the headline and the idea that we're asking people to not look away from kids in cages. For many people, especially those new supporters who were sort of just beginning to understand what really was happening in terms of immigration policy, um, I think that moment in time allowed them to really sort of fall down the rabbit hole and suddenly people who had not been engaged in the movement or the issues were suddenly finding out about the history of DHS and, you know, the history of ICE and CBP and what has happened prior to 2018, which, which was just in many ways equally as awful. And, and as, you know, our colleagues have said, you know, continues to happen. And, and I think for us, if, if we can, you know, pinpoint when we were able to sort of shift and, and think about strategies for change and really um, embracing what we can do to offer policy alternatives, I would like to encourage everyone to visit um, migrantjusticeplatform.org and read our platform. And you know, because I do think that that is a question that advocates and communicators have, you know, how do you sort of pick what to talk about on, on any given day in any given moment? And when one of the, the principles that guides us is uh, some don't have to suffer in order for others to advance, we're all in this together. And, and I think we can all agree this year has been unlike any other we've ever experienced. And, and this moment, um, in time where we have an opportunity to, to affect real change. Today we're 39 days away from the election. And so that moment is truly upon us and, and you know, to really live that and put it into action and to communicate to not just supporters, but the American public, don't look away. We're all in this together. And I, I think we want to 
share and really communicate to people that, you know, we need full participation and we need to be able to really affect that change. Thank you so much, Barbara. Um, this is, a, I think, a, a, a very good question. Um, how do you, or how did you, and this is from Nicole Simpson, how did you navigate multilingual audiences in your communications? And what were the factors you prioritized for which languages to use or not use? Um, would love to hear from, uh, the, uh, from, from the four at RISIS, and I can add a little bit about some of the media, the ethnic media outreach we did with this particular campaign. Well, on our end, um, on social media at least, we were targeting the stakeholders. So like, yes, we wanted the American audience in particular in this case to understand what was going on at the border, um, to understand that kids were definitely still in cages. Um, but who, who were the people in power that had the ability to do something about it? And that was Congress. That was this administration. And so what language did they speak English? Um, we also had a lot of it in Spanish. And so at least from our communications, we had both English and Spanish uh, posts going up all around. Um, and obviously I think those were, those were the, the stakeholders or the, the power holders, as I mentioned. Um, and that was, that was the the way that we planned it, at least from Raices's side. Thank you. I'll I'll just add to that. So at, at Benton, uh, fortunately, we have really extensive media lists for ethnic media um, and uh, both in both Spanish language media, which was certainly a priority for us, um, and was also easy easy to prioritize because our our wonderful. Um, issue experts from Rice, uh, many of them did speak Spanish, so could speak to Spanish language media. Um, but you know, in in the in the past, I worked at the Asian American Legal Defense Fund, and so making sure that Asian American immig Asian immigrants, Asian Americans, um, are also included in this conversation, even if they are not necessarily involved in the, um, even if they're not affected by this family separation policy um, to the same extent as far as as, as far as I know. Um, to interest people who care about immigration. And it was fairly easy to do um, because uh, it was very visual. And so it would interest, even if it seemed like, for example, to some Asian American media, like maybe this is this is focused on, on Spanish media, because it was such a compelling thing and it really felt like it involved the whole city, um, it interested such a such a such a wide range of media that we were able to get that story. Into um, into other Asian and have the the news outlets themselves translate the story and cover it in, in different Asian languages, which I always think is very important and, and, and try to you know I usually try to put in all all ethnic groups into our um, our outreach on immigration issues. There was also an interview the day of um, in French um, that kind of happened organically. Our CEO happens to be. Uh, fluent in French and Spanish and English. So we were able to, to leverage that. Um, just a, a thing I rem remembered out of the blue because we're talking about it now. So just wanted to share. That is funny. I did, I did forget that. 
Um, this is an interesting question. I think this one is, is, a, is a Liz question. Um, did you experience an overflow of support and donations? Um, should we should all be so lucky? If so, how did you respond in terms of redirecting funds to groups who didn't get much attention? Yeah, so I think in fundraising, we're looking for people who can, um, who can support us for years to come. And so in a given year, we might be in a surplus revenue year, but the real key is what's the sustainable support if we're going to keep fighting this for years? You know, we've talked about how big this, this, this challenge is in America. And so um, in 2018, there's a lot of press out there about this. We did get um, an overflow of, of funding that year. Uh, we scaled up immediately. Uh, the organizational budget doubled in the year when that happened. So uh, we went from uh, a year of lower than a, fewer than 100 employees to now we're at over 280 employees just two years later. Um, we have done some incredible scaling. So we actually started uh, our budget last year um, with the uh, presumption that it could be a first deficit year for the organization and that's what the, the kind of uh, cash on hand from the year before would be used for. Um, and so we were actually really fortunate from this moment. Again, we weren't prioritizing fundraising as a part of this campaign, but the, the inertia that my colleagues talk about really rippled and going into when the administration was threatening raids in 10 cities across the US, we had people's attention at that moment. And so we had some tweets go viral around the threat of raids that added to our supporter base. So we're still in a moment of building where we are trying to find those supporters who will help us with the fundraising and revenue we need on an annual basis to maintain the level that we're at. So we went from a deficit to surplus year last year, and we're still kind of in that, in that fight. We have, you know, our vision is to, that everyone has the more right to migrate and we're so far away from that. So there's a lot more we have to do. So we're investing in it continually back in the org, but great question. Thank you for that. Uh, I think that we, there are still some excellent questions that we didn't get to, but I think, uh, Unfortunately, um, uh, we are at time for today. So thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Um, and we invite you to learn more by visiting nokidsincages.com or going to raicestexas.org. Um, thank you for joining us, um, and please enjoy the rest of the conference. <laughs>